Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Shanta Tavarajan, Chief Economist of the World Bank's Middle East and North Africa region. We talk about quiet corruption and government failure in India, why teachers are absent 25% of the time and doctors 50% of the time in India, and why Yemen continues to produce cat despite not having a comparative advantage in it, why only 1% of the World Bank's capital reaches some of the intended targets in Chad with a 99% leakage, and the difference between the World Bank and the IMF. Are you an educator? Are you passionate about education and knowledge? Have you considered taking ownership and control over your content? If you're interested in creating a website, a podcast, or even educational videos, like a flipped classroom, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash community, register your interest, and I'll be in touch. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, why not subscribe to the Economic Rockstar podcast and you will get access to all previous episodes, including comedians Andrew Heaton and Joram Bauman and multimillionaire Ryan Blair. I want to get to know my Economic Rockstar listener so I can serve you better and make an even better show. So why not head over to economicrockstar.com forward slash survey, answer a few questions and be in with a chance of winning a $50 Amazon gift voucher. The reason why there's such high levels of unemployment is that the industrial structure is highly monopolized. And that has stood in the way of small and medium enterprises growing. And those are the engines of, of, of job creation. Throughout the world, what I find is that people care so much about the education of their children. They will sacrifice. They will not eat if they can send their kid to a better school. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Shanta Devarajan join me today. Hi, Shanta. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Nice to, nice to be with you. Shanta Devarajan is the Chief Economist of the World Bank's Middle East and North Africa region. Since joining the World Bank in 1991, he has been a Principal Economist and Research Manager for Public Economics in the Development Research Group and the Chief Economist of the Human Development Network, South Asia and Africa region. Shanta was the director of the World Development Report 2004, Making Services Work for Poor People. Before 1991, he was on the faculty of Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Shanta is the author and co-author of over 100 publications with his research covering public economics, trade policy, natural resources and the environment, and general equilibrium modeling of developing countries. Born in Sri Lanka, Shanta received his BA in Mathematics from Princeton University and his PhD in economics from the University of California, Berkeley. Shanta, I would love to explore a little bit about your background, if you don't mind, in terms of how you went from lecturing at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School up to your current position with the World Bank. Okay, sure. Well, as I said, I was, as you said, <laughs> I was uh, lecturing at the Kennedy School, uh, and that was uh, really enjoyable, both the, the teaching and the, and the research. And in many ways, it was, uh, was central to my, my formation as an economist, because I had done a PhD at Berkeley, and Berkeley at that time was highly theoretical, and that was my PhD was quite theoretical as well. And then I started teaching at the Kennedy School, 
which is a school of public policy. Now, I was teaching economics, but what I found most exciting about it was that my students were mostly people who would get a master's and then go off and work in the real world, you know, work in the Office of Management and Budget in the, gov- in the government or become a, a finance uh, secretary somewhere or so on. And they would sort of bring up problems in class that forced me to actually interpret what I was saying, all my models, into the real world. And I found this just a really uh, invigorating experience. So I was doing all this teaching, and it was it was really going well. But I found that my research was mostly in development, almost exclusively in, in developing countries. And I was doing a lot of research with the World Bank. And I got to a point where the teaching, while it was enjoyable, was becoming somewhat routine, I would say. You know, there's a tendency, if you're halfway uh, good at it, to not change anything. Uh, and so uh, you would teach the same courses over and over again. The students changed every year, so they didn't mind. But you began to feel like you had uh, uh, you were becoming uh, routine. So I thought I had the chance to have a sabbatical, and so I took it to come down to the World Bank to the research department of the World Bank. So that was not a, it was not an abrupt change. It was basically being in the research department of the World Bank is like being a professor at, at Harvard in the sense that most of what you do is research with a little bit of, uh, instead of teaching, I used to say I teach older people now, which is you know, working with the operations complex. And then for personal reasons, my wife, who was also an academic, got a job at the IMF, and so we and we thought it might be time to have kids, so we decided to stay in the same city. And so I stayed on at uh, the research department. So the, the big trend, and as I said, that was not a big transition. The big transition in my professional life, I think, came maybe about 10 years later when I moved from the research department to the operations complex of the World Bank, which is where I am now. Uh, I mean, these are the people who actually do the loans and, and conduct the, the, the dialogue with client governments and so on. And the reason for that actually was more of, of my thinking at that time. And that was, you know, that now I had been a researcher for maybe 20 years. And I felt like there was the marginal product of writing an additional paper was lower than my actually trying to go out there and apply what I do to reduce poverty. I became quite passionate uh, about this quest to reduce poverty. And I felt like, you know, we had learned some tools and we had learned some ideas as economists that can actually be applied. And I, I remember a sort of watershed moment. The World Bank has a program where you can go and spend a village with a poor person living and, and working with them, trying to see what their lives are like. And I did that with a poor woman in Gujarat in Western India. She was uh, li- literally lives on a dollar a day. And I lived with her and cooked with her and ate with her and worked in the fields with her. And it really struck me, you know, here I was a researcher from the World Bank, having led, I just led that World Development Report that you mentioned and everything else. And it struck me that there was so much we could do to help this person and and people like her that we weren't doing. And in particular, what we could do is empower them with information. I became increasingly convinced that the problems of 
poverty and develop, underdevelopment are problems of government failure. And they're problems of government failure because the political system is one that, uh, where poor people don't have sufficient voice and sufficient ability to make sure that politicians take decisions in their, in their interest. And I think that's something that we as economists can help with. And so I dedicated the rest of my career at that point to empowering poor people with information with, and using economic analysis to empower them. And that's what I've been doing since. I mean, I feel somewhat fortunate that I, having been the chief economist of uh, three regions now, I've been in a position where I could actually promote that. And, you know, when you, at the World Bank, if you've been here long enough, they begin to give you a little bit more license to speak out quite candidly. And that's why I have a blog and I have a Twitter account and I write somewhat provocative pieces from time to time. Uh, but all of this is really devoted to and dedicated to getting information in the hands of poor people so they can demand what is their due. It's quite a, a long sabbatical. I'm sure the sabbatical is well over and you're well grounded now in Washington. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to later on ask you about the parallels or the similarities between um, your work and also your wife's work at the IMF. Um, maybe uh, I'll get back to that soon. But yeah. you mentioned uh, your passion about having to try and solve the crisis of poverty around the world. And the key there is to do with government failure and putting the correct information in the hands of maybe both the government and the people. Um, mm -hmm. Is this the role of the World Bank or is this a, an evolving role? Because now if you look at a, a map of the activities that the World Bank is in or the countries in which the World Bank is actively involved in, there are a lot of African countries, South American, and as you mentioned, uh, India. Is mm -hmm. this is this something that is is likely to change over time? Uh, this is very much what the World Bank is involved in and will continue to be involved in. Uh, it really goes back. I mean, the, the World Bank's mission is a world free of poverty. We want to end uh, extreme poverty around the world. Uh, the question is how. Right yeah. now, I think I do think that the the traditional view of development, actually, if you go back to the literature of the 1950s and 60s, it, it was thought that development was a market failure problem, that there were capital markets weren't working, poor countries didn't have access to capital, and so we had to provide capital, and that's how you know it's like the World Bank <laughs> emerged as sources of capital. But I think it became very clear even by the 70s and 80s that the problem was not just simply lack of capital, that there were policy distortions in these countries that made this capital unproductive. The challenge became trying to remove these policy distortions or try to improve the policies so that the capital could be productive. And that's what you might say led to the structural adjustment era and the post-debt crisis period in, in, in developing countries. And I think to, to some extent the policies... Uh, environment, particularly the macroeconomic policy environment, has improved in developing countries. But then what I found, like particularly working in South Asia and in India, you mentioned India just now, is that while there, there's been progress and India is growing quite rapidly, there are huge, huge distortions, huge government failures in things that matter to poor people like education and health. 
For instance, the teachers in public primary schools in India are absent 25% of the time. Why is that? The doctors, right? Okay. And as you say, the other statistic I like to use is that the doctors are absent 40% of the time from the clinics, right? Um, The reason is that the teachers get paid whether or not they show up for work. And many of them are assigned to rural schools where they don't want to be. So they continue to collect their salary and uh, stay in the, in the urban areas. Now, the other side of that, that's where it gets to the political aspect, is that teachers in many of these areas are the ones who run the election campaigns of the local politicians. So you have this cozy relationship where the teacher runs the campaign, gets the politician elected, and the politician, in turn, gives the teacher a job for which he doesn't have to show up. The trouble is that the people who lose out are the poor. And it's even worse for health, for the medical profession, because if the doctor is not in the clinic and your kid is sick, you're desperate, the poor people end up going and paying big money to private doctors. And some of these are highly unqualified doctors. They're, they're quacks. Uh, and again, the, the, the medical unions are so powerful they will resist any attempt at reform where you have to, where you can create some incentive for the doctor to show up in the public clinic. And now, what has this got to do with uh, information? I, I'll tell you an anecdote from the time I was in Gujarat with this uh, poor woman, Champaben. Um, her kid was sick, and she took the kid to the quack, basically, a, a private clinic, and she paid money, and I wasn't sure whether the doctor had any qualifications. So I asked her, why did you do that? And she looked at me like I was some kind of idiot and said, of course I did that because the doctor is never there in the public clinic. So I asked her, why is the doctor never there? And her answer really spoke volumes to me. She said, oh, it's because the rains didn't come this year. You see, the, the, the problem is that poor people, life is terrible for poor people. And they think that the doctor's absence is just one of those unfortunate things that happen to poor people rather than that it was a failure of public policy. And you can see that if, if she thinks so, if she thinks it's just, it's just bad luck that the doctor is not there, then she's unlikely to exercise her voice or her vote to try to throw out a politician from office who doesn't make sure that doctors show up and you can see that once the, the politician thinks that, then the politician has no incentive to advocate for doctors <laughs> appearing in the clinic. So this is, the, this is the, the vicious cycle I want to reverse. I want to be able to tell people like Chumpaben that, in fact, the reason the doctor is, <laughs> is not there is because the politician for whom she voted <laughs> is not advocating for making sure doctors show up and that she can do something about it by demanding what is her due. So this is something you refer to as quite corruption in some of your writings. Yes, exactly. So this is the kind of quiet corruption that goes on. And it's so quiet, but, it's, it, but also, um, and I think I've gone beyond that, that paper I wrote, uh, I don't know now, what, seven years ago, uh, which is that it is really a deep political problem. That the uh, quiet corruption. I, I I I don't even sometimes I don't like to use the word corruption because people 
make it sound it sounds like it's an illegal activity there's nothing there's nothing illegal about this <laughs> seems to be a, a, especially with if forty percent of the doctors are are not showing up it's not it's not clear that you could successfully prosecute them um, but it is a failure of the system. The political system is geared in such a way that it generates this kind of uh, absenteeism. What solution have you come or has the World Bank come up with? Do you think it's going to be a technology solution like the way Facebook or Google are going to make broadband available throughout the world and especially in these poor areas? Well, the, the technology is a, is an input into a solution, but the solution has to come from um, generating this information and then finding ways in which we can make it accessible to the, the uh, to poor people. Uh, for instance, even this information about absenteeism that I referred to earlier is information that um, really hadn't been collected until we actually went and did it. I mean, we, we ran surveys all over the developing world and continue to do so now um, of, um, of absenteeism of teachers and doctors. But the second point, and we insisted on doing that in India, we've done it in bits and pieces in other places as well, was to get this information back to the people, back to the, the poor people, because it's about their lives. And something like absenteeism of doctors and teachers is something that people can actually grasp because it's, it's, it's real. It's something they feel every day. And what we found was, and what was interesting, you know, some people criticized us saying, you know, why are you bothering to send it to, give it to the people because they already know that the teachers are absent. But what was interesting was when they knew that everybody else knew. So now it was common information rather than private information. It actually could have an effect, and it has had an effect. There has been reform of the education system in parts of India. There have been reforms in Kenya and in Tanzania that really came out of the political movements that this kind of information has done. So the bank can do quite a lot because we collect this information. That's part of our analytical work. But we can go the next mile and actually get the information back back to the people who matter. I mean, I think one, one thing I've been trying to do, we've been trying to do over the last 10 years, 15 years, is not just make our analytical work accessible to the senior members of government, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously, we should make it accessible to them, but they're not the only audience. And in fact, sometimes they're not the most important audience. The most important audience are the people themselves. Um, and the point I keep refer- mentioning is that this is information about these poor people. I mean, we go out and do these household surveys where we survey what poor people eat and drink and what they, the clothes they wear and everything else and write these beautiful papers and volumes and books and databases. But we never take it back to those people and say, here, this is what we found out. Thank you for, for giving us your information. So I think we have an obligation, at least, to get it back to the people from whom we are collecting this information. If these failed social contracts stands in the way of poor people coming out of poverty, how is the information or the surveys that you collect and maybe bring back to these people going to change their mindset if they believe that the rains never came so as a result of doctor? If they're, if they're right. very much superstitious, they're not going to believe some of these reports or surveys that they believe could end up being, in a way, doctored if pardoned upon. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's not easy, but I think these people do actually believe or, or recognize the problems they're having. 
I mean, and let me now turn to my current region, Middle East and North Africa. Everybody recognizes that the, the biggest problem in the region is unemployment. Very high. We have the highest rate of unemployment in the developing world. And youth unemployment is about double what the uh, overall unemployment rate is. Now, the research that we have done shows that the reason why there's such high levels of unemployment is that the industrial structure is highly monopolized. And that has stood in the way of small and medium enterprises growing. And those are the engines of, of, of job creation. So you've got a few large enterprises that don't grow and are not very productive, but are kept there. And then the question is, why are they kept there? Well, now we have evidence that it's because of crony capitalism, that th these were firms that were connected to the political elites. So in Tunisia, you know, under Ben Ali, the former president who was uh, thrown out of office four years ago, in Tunisia, the Ben Ali family was connected to a significant number of firms, and we found that those firms, the, 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 the Ben Ali family firms are about 3% of total output in the economy, but their profits were 20% of the total profits in the economy. Mm. And basically, they received protection from foreign competition as well as from domestic competition for the sectors in which the firms were intensive. And as a result, Tunisia really hasn't been able to develop a competitive export-oriented economy. I mean, it's a little bit of a puzzle why Tunisia, which has a fairly highly educated population, very nice location right across from Europe, and pretty good infrastructure, hasn't been able to be a manufacturing export-driven powerhouse. And the reason is, because it's the, the industrial structure has been monopolized by the cronies of the political elites. So what we are trying to do is to connect the dots here. You know, to say people are constantly talking about unemployment and jobs. And we say, look, the reason why you're, <laughs> you, 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 you don't have jobs is really because of the elite capture. And let's make sure that you don't make that mistake again with the new regime in power. And we have to be vigilant in trying to protect this economy from elite capture. The Arab awakening that happened a number of years ago with the uprisings and so on across North Africa and the Middle East, would you think a lot of that, that movement or that uprising would have stemmed from some of the reports that maybe the World Bank would have produced? Or was this something that was a change was needed and by these people who actually stood up and decided to take a stance? <laughs> well, <laughs> the World Bank did produce some reports, but they were uh, carefully edited and in some cases not even published. Uh, and so some people may have uh, gotten bootleg copies of it. For instance, we did do a report back then called From Privilege to Competition, which was already documenting the, the crony capitalism that was there. Uh, but we were forbidden from, from mentioning specific countries. So this was considered a, a regional report, and we were only portraying regional averages and uh, things like that. So, no, I, I, think, uh, I think this came from, from below. I mean, it, it came from this idea that there was an old social contract in the Arab world where the state actually provided jobs through the public sector, and provided free health and education and subsidized food and fuel. And in return, 
I think it's fair to say that the the, the citizens uh, kept their voices low because they didn't want to risk losing this largesse of the state, uh, and they tolerated some of this elite capture of private profits. But what began to happen starting around the two, early 2000s was that the state could no longer continue to be the employer, the main employer, because they were running huge deficits. And the quality of the service uh, of the health and education, even if it was free, was very poor, as we, as we were mentioning earlier. And so basically the state had failed on its side of the social contract. And so the citizens, I think quite rightly, said, well, if you're not going to keep your end of the bargain, we're not going to keep ours. And they started raising their voice and demanding justice and dignity. And that's the situation that uh, erupted in the Arab Spring. The area of North Africa, from Tunisia over to Libya, there's such a diversity in terms of, say, GDP per capita, because in Libya, you're talking maybe 15,000 US dollars and in Tunisia, approximately $7,000. So I, mm-hmm. I know there, there's quite a geographical um, distance between the two, but still they're in that category of North Africa. How would countries like this have such differentiation compared to, say, European countries? Is it to do with autocratic government? Well, no, the big differentiation... By the way, Tunisia and Libya have no difference, uh, no, no geographic difference. They even have a common border. Uh, so, but it's ma- mostly to do with natural resources. Okay. Uh, Libya is, is an oil and gas rich country and Tunisia is not. So basically the oil rich countries have a higher per capita income, Algeria, Libya, Iran, and certainly then the Gulf states are even higher. So we've got Qatar with a per capita income of $80,000 uh, and things like that. And the oil importers or the non-resource rich countries like Morocco, Tunisia, Jordan, Egypt, are, you know, they, they range from about 2000 to about 5000 well, no, about 3000 to about 7000 Then the poorest country is Yemen, which is the only low-income country, and that's for a variety of reasons. Yemen, incidentally, is an oil exporter, although it's not doing too much of that these days, but uh, it's also a country with a lot of tribal factions, and it's been invaded a few times, and it's been suffering from uh, various internal conflict and, and maladies. The Middle East and North Africa is a very, very intriguing and rapidly developing area that you're working in. And lately I've seen a picture of Gaddafi's son in prison, and yet his country is devastated and in ruin. I I know it's fairly early to tell, and over time we may see more of a democratic society, but perhaps some countries need a kind of like a dictatorship or an autocratic society in order to deliver policies or... The trouble is you would always, uh, you, you don't mind having a, a, a dictator as long as it's a benevolent dictator, right? That's, the trouble is you can never tell ex ante whether the guy is going to be uh, benevolent, he's going to be a Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, or he's going to be uh, Mobutu in Democratic Republic of Congo. So I actually think that, and, and let me say that the, the problems in Libya today are actually related to the Gaddafi dictatorship because there there were lots of there are some different tribal groups in Libya and what Gaddafi did was basically keep them all mildly satisfied by doling out a little bit of largesse to the different groups and maintaining some order once Gaddafi 
left, it became clear that one of the groups was going to lose out to the other. Each group was concerned that they would be the, the, the losers. And uh, what has erupted right now is a civil war. I, I think if you've got ethnic differences or tribal differences, it's kind of hard to think that that can actually work in a dictatorship. All a dictatorship does is keep it suppressed. So I, my, my own view is it's too risky to say, let's, let's go through a period of dictatorship to get everything done. The downside risk is too high. And so let's go for democracy for the reasons that I was saying earlier, which is that it actually enables poor people to exercise voice, which is going to be critical. But it's going to be messy. It's going to be noisy. Democracies can be quite turbulent. But as Churchill, I think, said, uh, it it's, looks good when you compare it to the alternative. A lot of the governments in these areas, they tend to have perhaps subsidies and maybe, the, as you mentioned, their high public sector wage bills for teachers and other professions. And that tends to crowd up much needed public investment and relief to poor families. And it also restricts private sector access to finance capital. Is there some way that the World Bank or these governments could recognize that you need to remove that crowding out effect? and allow private access or start building an entrepreneurial mindset and get these countries out of poverty that way? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the subsidies them just by themselves are hugely corrosive. I mean, that's one of the things that we've been writing about and, and doing research on is, is the fact that almost under any justification, these subsidies are failing. They certainly don't reach the poor. I mean, fuel subsidies... Uh, the overwhelming share of fuel, fuel subsidies goes to the rich. They're the ones who consume most fuel, air conditioners and cars and everything else. Uh, similarly, they are a drain on the budget, as you say, because they take a, they crowd out other kinds of expenditures that could be more productive. But the other thing is that they distort the market. So you have highly energy-intensive industries in countries where fuel is scarce. And energy-intensive industries, say in Egypt, are also capital-intensive. So that actually discriminates against employment as well, because you don't have the labor-intensive industries that could be the dynamic engines of, of growth and employment. And then with water subsidies, you, you know, the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa region, is the most water-scarce region in the world. We also have very high levels of water subsidies. And you can see what that creates. The incentives are there to pump out a lot of water. And we grow water-intensive crops in water-scarce areas like, like Yemen. Uh, in fact, one of the most uh, water-using crops is cot, this uh, thing that people chew. And unfortunately, now they're quite addicted to it so that they keep the demand is still very high and it's depleting the water to the point where say Sana'a, the capital of women, is really out of water completely. So these subsidies are just corrosive under almost any definition, and we have to replace them. And I think they're making progress. I mean, the, certainly it helped to, when oil prices came crashing down last January, many of our oil exporters, countries like Kuwait and the UAE just recently, decided they needed to trim their subsidies. But also some of the oil importers like Morocco, Egypt, uh, and a few others are working towards subsidy reform because they're realizing how much damage this is doing to their economies. 
Yeah, it's it's very difficult to get my head around the whole idea that a country could who doesn't have a comparative advantage in a good like Yemen with cut that they wouldn't import it, or is it that conditions such as temperature and so on is very amenable to such a product? You know. Yeah. <laughs> good question. I, I asked the same question. Well, it turns out that cut is one of those things that you need to be able to consume fresh. And so that was that's one reason is is that if you import it, it has to be flown in, and then it might be a few, a few hours after it's been picked. And they want to uh, get it when it's just freshly picked. Okay. But the second reason, and this is now being documented, is that the uh, president's wife, the then president's wife, actually managed the cut monopoly domestically. Mm. Um, and she was just making a lot of money from it. And of course, imports will be competition. Mm. So there's there's no way an entrepreneur would be able to compete with such a, a force. Yeah, that, that was uh, it, well it, when it was the president's wife. I mean, I yeah. didn't think it was somebody else, but <laughs> since they could even control the the airplanes coming in, uh, it it could have sure. been a, a difficult factor. But it, it's a very good question because you have other countries. Where the cut is like Djibouti, where they also chew cut, but it's 100% imported. And so it doesn't have to be uh, grown domestically. Mm. Can I ask you, going back to that previous query that I had, and maybe it should have been one of the first questions, Shanta. The World Bank, its main purpose, and how different is it to the IMF? Because both are kind of lending, con- lending institutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's a good question. The main re- difference is that the the IMF is concerned about short-term macroeconomic developments, whereas the World Bank is concerned about long-term development. So a- anything that is of the order of one to two years uh, is is when the IMF uh, comes in. Usually, in a countries have a macroeconomic crisis or so on. Whereas if it's a question of building a road or a bridge or uh, educating children, that's the, the, where the World Bank comes in. Now, obviously, these are distinctions, as we're learning in, in economics as well, the distinction between the short run and the long run is very difficult to draw. And so there's quite a lot of intersection between what uh, what we do. And, and we, since they're just across the street, we communicate quite intensively. There may have been a view in the past that because it's more macro-focused, the IMF was looking at the aggregate budget rather than the composition of the budget. And there was some discussion in the in the late 1990s about that because you had all these countries with fiscal crises and the IMF would call on them to cut their budgets in order to maintain fiscal balance, which, which I would agree is a good thing. But somehow just cutting the budget rather than cutting uh, wasteful expenditures and protecting some valuable expenditures makes a big difference. Mm. And so we got into a situation where the the bank would actually go in and look at the composition of the budget and suggest where it's better to cut rather than just simply take the the targets that the IMF has given. Now, I think that both institutions have evolved quite a bit since then, and the IMF now looks quite closely at the composition Okay. Of, uh, of expenditures, and we also worry quite a lot about macroeconomic stability. Okay. I was just going to ask, why didn't, based on what you were saying, it would have been a good idea for the World Bank to maybe have stepped in and got involved in the Greek situation 
But um, you just answered it there yeah. that the IMF oh, oh, yeah, the composition as well. By the way, that's the other difference is that uh, the IMF, the, the the World Bank only works on developing countries, and the IMF works on all countries. Okay. So, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I I, I do think that uh, in in the Greek case as well, uh, it's the composition of their budget that's the that's the problem, other than the overall level necessarily. Where does the World Bank get its finance from? And when they lend to a developing country, how much finance do they charge, if any? Right. That's a good question. So for our for our middle-income countries, the financing is uh, obtained by uh, World Bank bonds. So, uh, we use the paid-in capital, which the original members of the World Bank pledged back in 1947, uh, which has now grown to, I don't know, two $300 billion. We, we use that as collateral to float bonds and because of that substantial collateral we're able to get bonds at about three quarters of a percent below the market rate and then we lend it to these countries at i think about half uh, half to a quarter of a percent below market rate and the difference between those two is what pays our salaries okay okay and this is all in now that and that's for the middle-income countries. Now, for the low-income countries, the, mostly the countries in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a separate window which is called IDA, the International Development Association. Now, those are essentially concessional loans which are pledged every three years by donor countries. So we go out and collect IDA money. It's about $50 billion dollars. And that is lent at virtually zero interest with a long 35-year grace period. Okay. And I, I take it it's Great. all in denominated in dollars as well? Um, no, now actually no. we're doing uh, – uh, yeah, it's mostly denominated in dollars, but now there are a few options for uh, other currencies as well. But this is going back to the middle-income countries. In African countries, there's a lot of unbanked people. Um, mm mm-hmm. How do how does this money trickle down to to the people who are unbanked? Yes, they, well, the, the 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 money itself doesn't necessarily trickle down, but it's what the government does with it. So, for instance, if the government builds a a road or a bridge to a village that is otherwise isolated, then that money is trickling down, if you like, in order because it gives market access to poor farmers in remote areas in Tanzania or wherever. The main way in the, which the money trickles down is through public goods, mm-hmm. like infrastructure, health, education. But as we were saying earlier, <laughs> there's often a slip between the cup and the lip. So mm-hmm. we find that you know money intended for primary education or primary clinics often leaks before it gets there. And that's one of the things that's one of the things that we're working on is trying to improve that uh, percentage. Now, I think you you touched on an important point, which I've been working on, you know, especially for these resource rich countries. By the way, the, the, the leakage is even higher in these resource rich countries, uh, particularly in Africa. For instance, in Chad, we found that the the amount of money that was intended for public primary clinics that actually arrives at the clinic is 1%. So the leakage rate is 99%. Mm. Uh, and Chad is an oil-rich country. Uh, and the reason for that is that there's very little accountability for this money, right? Uh, oil money, unlike even aid, 
just comes into straight to the government from the oil company, and there's very little scrutiny about how the government, uh, what the government does with it. Often, the government doesn't even tell the public how much money is coming in, which makes it easier to steal it. So several of us have been advocating that instead of the money going to the government and the government allegedly building public goods or roads and bridges and schools and things like that, why not transfer the money directly to the people? Mm-hmm as a direct transfer, and let them demand the schools and the clinics and, and, and everything else with it. Yes. It's a little bit like what they're doing in Alaska, uh, what they've been doing in Alaska for 50 years, and, and now they've recently started in Alberta, Canada as well, with their oil money. Um, and I think this is something, this is an idea whose time has come, because, and you mentioned about unbanked people, but it is possible to get this money to individuals through a smart card that they can use as a debit card, mm-hmm. and this would have biometric uh, identification, so you can't steal it. You know, it'll be associated with your the iris of your eye. Yes. Um, and now the technology is such that you can issue these cards for about two dollars each. And the example is India. Now in India, they're introducing this for 1.2 billion people, and they've already got I don't know seven million of them with these smart cards in their pockets through which they're going to do the, all the subsidies and the, the health insurance and everything else associated with uh, anti-poverty programs. I, I think it would be a fascinating way of trying to bypass possibly corrupt governments and have the money made available to the citizens. For example, I'm not sure what the multiplier effect would be, but the more bridges and roads you you have, the the multiplier effect may not be as large as somebody who would be entrepreneurial and could use that money more effectively and efficiently and build uh, and have a knock-on effect within a town or a village that they're in. Yeah, no, but people, uh, you know, this idea uh, receives quite a lot of criticism from various quarters, including, well, you know, people don't know how to spend it. They'll just squander the money. They'll drink away. In fact, when I was presenting this in South Sudan, they said, oh, they'll just use the money to take on another wife, which I thought was an interesting (laughs) comment. And, and there are also criticisms that it won't be used for public goods, which is because, almost by definition. Uh, but I think actually what you just said is, is, is closer to the truth. I mean, we now have experiments, randomized control trials, that show that if you give people money, they actually spend it on investment. So there's an experiment in Uganda where Chris Blattman gave cash to one group of people and gave business training and business investment and credit to another group of people. And he found that the first group of people actually did more investment in their business than the second group. So, yeah, yeah, and, and throughout the world, what I find is that people care so much about the education of their children. They will sacrifice. They will not eat if they can send their kid to a better school. And this is including poor people and including illiterate people. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not too worried that they'll they'll blow the money. I think they'll actually make better use of it than some of these corrupt governments will. There are amazing insights, Shanta, that you've shared with us. Fantastic work that you're doing at the World Bank. Can I ask you a couple of quick questions before we wrap up the interview? Sure. Yeah. Who would your main influencers be in terms of economics? Huh. That's a good question. <laughs> and I think it's changed over time. I would say that in, in, when I was in graduate school, 
My main influence was Gerard de Brue, who was one of my professors in graduate school and maybe the father of applying mathematics to economics. Then subsequently, probably, well, certainly people like Joe Stiglitz have had a big influence on the whole idea of you know building simple models to treat some difficult questions and problems. Then I should say that other professors of mine, like Sherman Robinson, who was my undergraduate professor, but somebody with whom I've collaborated and continue to collaborate, we just finished another paper a few days ago, has had a long influence on the work on general equilibrium uh, modeling. And I would say that I also want to give some credit to somebody like Paul Collier, whom I've worked with and known for about 35 years. As he was an inspiration to me because he was probably the first person to show that you can do rigorous economic analysis on Africa in a data weak environment. And when he started doing that in the late 70s, early 80s, I was just sort of coming of age as an economist. And that was really quite an inspiration. And I tried to follow in his footsteps in some of those, uh, some of those areas. You mentioned a paper that you were working on recently. Do you have any other book or research that you're actually working on that you might like to give us some insight on? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> there's quite a few things. Well, actually, this this paper that I just finished with Sherman uh, and two others might be uh, something to talk about. This was a, a paper on how country resource-rich countries, what kind of fiscal rules these resource-rich countries should use in the face of volatility in natural resource prices. So the classic example being oil, right? And you've got a, you've got a newly rich, oil-rich country like Niger that is still facing huge fluctuations in the price of oil, and you want to have some kind of rule saying, if the price goes above this, we will save it, and if it goes below it, we will cut expenditures or something like that. Now, these kinds of rules are somewhat controversial, particularly for low-income countries, because people say, oh, they shouldn't save it when the price of oil goes up. They should actually use it to invest domestically and because these countries are capital scarce. So what we did was we developed a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model and tried to simulate a couple of different strategies for managing oil resource booms where we compared a situation where you spend it all on saving abroad if it's an increase, and if it's a decrease, you you draw down those savings, like a sovereign wealth fund, or you spend it all on investment abroad, and uh, I mean on investment domestically, and then if you uh, if the price goes down, you cut back on investment, and then a third regime, which is a combination of the other two. And what we find is it's kind of intriguing that there's. If you leave out the, the combination between the saving abroad and the investing domestically, there is no clear-cut winner. That actually, on the upswing, it's better to save because that enables you to allocate to smooth consumption over time. The downswing, and this is this is a bit of a surprise to me, it actually makes sense to cut investment rather than cut savings or cut uh, consumption because the cutting back on investment actually lowers the price of domestic goods. This is the kind of thing you get from a general equilibrium model. Mm. And the lowering of the price of domestic goods means that the government, which has a budget, has more money left over to transfer to households during the, the, during the recession, during a, a, a cutback. 
Okay. And so what we conclude is that since there's no winner between the saving abroad versus investing domestically, in the face of fluctuation, the prices go up and prices go down, the balanced regime, which is a combination of the two, and we said 50-50 between saving and investment, is the optimal regime. Okay, so it smooths out those fluctuations as well. Yeah. I'd love to know, do you have any internet resource that you use quite regularly? An internet resource. Mm, I suppose you have all the, the database of the World Bank is one that you use Yeah, yeah, the often. whole World Bank database, which, by the way, is is now available to the whole world. Yeah, uh, I use it quite but, a lot, uh, actually, in my classes. Yeah, I use, I use that. I, I do have a, a blog called Future Development, and I'm quite active on Twitter, as you, I think that's where you found me, yes. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Uh, do you have a recommended book? A recommended book? Mm. Or what the latest book that you've read will be another one in the in the in the economics uh, sphere. Uh, anything will do, Shanta. Anything. <laughs> you might be interested. Listen, I'm coming to your country. I'm reading James Joyce's Dubliners. Lovely, and it's really enjoyable. I, he, he writes so. It's some of the best writing in the English language you can you can find. But it also gives you that whole. Uh, the atmosphere in Dublin uh, in the turn of the century. Yes. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. And, and we'll be seeing each other soon when you come to Ireland also. I hope so, yes. Yeah. That's right. That <laughs> I look forward to meeting up with you, Shanta. I sure will. Yes, actually, yeah, and I think I have your your. Um, is this your cell number? It is. Yes, you can keep that actually. Okay. And when you're in Ireland, then you can give me a ring or even email right. me. That's I will. Great. I'd love to have one more question. Do you have one takeaway that you'd like to share with us in terms of perhaps the work that you do, the outlook that you have in terms of poverty, or even how you might get things done? Yeah, the takeaway is that. The problems of poor people are man-made, and we as economists can actually help solve them. And the way in which we can help solve them is by turning our work towards empowering them. The reason they're man-made is that poor people lack political power, and we can actually strengthen their, their clout, their political power, by providing economic analysis and making it accessible to them. Shanta Devarjan, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share it again with our listeners where they can find you. They can find me. Uh, uh, my Twitter handle is at Shanta underscore WB. My blog is called Future Development. And they can also reach me on by email at sdevarajan at worldbank.org. You can find all links to Shanta on economicrockstar.com forward slash Shanta Devarajan. Shanta, you are an economic rock star. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. You ask great questions. By the way. <laughs> Thanks very much. Very good. And thanks for what you do, Frank. This is really uh, it's a valuable contribution. Having this. Thanks very much. I really appreciate what you just said there. And I'll talk to you okay. soon and have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.